The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary Linda. All right, we have a painting that I want to put up here uh, this morning. This is by Rembrandt. It's called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was painted in 1663. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it by way of just describing the world we live in. This is the world we live in. We live in a world where thieves break in and steal. We live in a world where bad things, hard things Sorrow-filled things happen. On March 19, 1990, at 1.24 a.m., two men who were dressed as Boston police officers lured the security guards of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum away from the only alarm button in the building and tied them up and spent the next 81 minutes loading 13 priceless works of art into a van waiting outside. And then they drove off into the night and those works have never been seen again. Those works included a Johannes Vermeer, The Concert, which is one of only 35 Vermeers known to exist in the world. A flank landscape, a 3,000-year-old Chinese vase from the Shang Dynasty, one Manet, five Degas, and three Rembrandts, one a postage-sized self-portrait etching, one his formal lady and gentleman in black, and last, one of the most prominent displays in the museum, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The thieves cut the painting out of its frame with a box cutter. The Storm on the Sea of Galilee is Rembrandt's only known seascape. It's one of his most dramatic paintings. And it captures a moment. It captures that moment just after the disciples knew they would die if Jesus didn't save them. And just before he saved them. And when people would look at this painting as we look at it now, we see it on a screen so some of the detail is lost for us. But when they look at this painting, they see the same thing that we see. And that is Rembrandt is in that boat. Rembrandt is in there and he is looking out through the frame. He's looking us dead in the eye. Rembrandt is the guy 
He's in the middle, and he's holding on to a rope, and he's got one hand on his hat, and he's looking out at the viewer. Can you see him on there? He's like right in the middle. I'm going to try to show you exactly where he is. I hope we don't feed back. That's Rembrandt right there. So he painted himself into this painting. And on one side of him is a group of disciples who are straining at the sails and the ropes and they're trying to keep the boat from capsizing. On the other side is a group of disciples who are trying to wake a sleeping Jesus. And Rembrandt is looking at us. And what's happening in that moment is he's got this terror on his face and he's putting the question to us that the disciples are putting to Jesus. And that question is, don't you care that we're perishing here? Does that bother you? Does that stir anything in you? And I, and I, I just, there had to have been a moment when that thief and Rembrandt eye to eye and I wonder if they made eye contact I wonder about that by painting himself into the boat in the storm on the Sea of Galilee Rembrandt wants us to know that he believes that his life will either be lost in a sea of chaos or it will be saved by the Son of God. And those are the only two options. And that, in a nutshell, is Christianity. We are either lost in a sea of chaos or we are saved by the Son of God and there is no third way. And so Rembrandt is here and he's painted himself in this and by peering out through the storm and out of the frame to us, he is asking us, pun intended, are we in the same boat? Many of us in this room are paralyzed by fear. We're paralyzed by fear. And it's different. People fear different things in different ways. There are different things we're afraid of, but many of us are paralyzed by fear. And today's text tells us a story of a moment of paralyzing fear for Jesus' disciples. And their question gets to the heart of it really quick. Don't you care that we're perishing? And so what I want to do is I want to get into the disciples' world. I want to get into the boat with Rembrandt. I want to experience, I want to understand what's happening here first context. Because we do context here. The Sea of Galilee, this is body of water in Israel. Sea of Galilee, and then there's the Jordan River that flows into the Dead Sea, and so they're connected to each other. Sea of Galilee sits about in a valley about 700 feet below sea level. Just think about that for a second. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And just to the north of it is Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon rises to a height of about 9,200 feet above sea level. Which means that the top, from the top of Mount Hermon through this valley down to the Sea of Galilee, there's a 10,000 foot drop. And there's winds that come in from the Mediterranean and then they shift and there are winds that come in from the desert. And what happens in this particular place is these winds will begin to, because of the pressure and the way that the hot and the cold air hit each other, they will race down that valley from the mountain down across the Sea of Galilee and they'll do it in an instant and it will churn up the Sea of Galilee into this, well, into the kind of storm that you see here. You, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, you can see across it. 
It's not that big. But because of the way that the geography is, it has these storms that happen that are sudden and that are severe. And we learn a lot about these storms by seeing how the disciples themselves respond to it because these disciples were fishermen and the Sea of Galilee was their workplace. And so they understand it. They understand what it means to live and work on that sea. And so when this storm comes, they knew what this storm meant. They knew that these storms raced that 10,000 feet down from Hermon and slammed into their boats. And when it happened, it meant that they were in trouble. It matters for us to understand that these disciples worked here on the sea when the storm hit because we learn, about their, we learn about it by their reaction. They didn't wonder if they were in trouble. They knew they were in trouble. They knew they were in trouble. These grizzled seafaring guys they were in a 747 over the ocean with no engines. They knew where this was going. And we're like this. We have fears that we look at, we size up, and we say, I know where this is going. This is going to ruin me. We have fears where we've already imagined how they're going to destroy us, and no one can talk you out of that. You, you lock into it. And you're so convinced. You almost feel like it would be irresponsible to begin to hope a little bit. There's sacred fears. Hold on to them. What are yours? Some of you may be thinking, I don't know, that's a good question. Others of you might be saying, well, I can name four in great detail right now. We... We have, as people, we have a small view of what it means to live. We have a small view of what it means to perish. And it's not really our fault because we really have a narrow view of the world and our place in it, if you think about it. We just kind of have a small view of our world, our place in it. We're filled with blind spots. There's so much we don't see. There's so much we don't understand. And though Scripture frames life in the context of eternity... We evaluate ourselves and how we're doing. We evaluate our living and our dying, usually according to the calm and the storm. Life can be divided into two categories. The things are okay category and the things are not okay category. Examples, a bill comes that you can't pay. And so your certain financial ruin is only weeks away and you're going to lose everything. And it's crystal clear. Where there's a decision that looms, and you know, if I make this decision, I'll choose one thing, and it will be at the exclusion of other things. And I, I don't know if I want to choose this thing if it means I can't have these other choices open to me anymore, and so you get stuck. Or maybe you're in a relationship that has reached a point where there needs to be a wedding or a breakup. You don't want to be alone. You don't know what to do. Maybe there's a medical crisis that hits and you've lost the sense that you're in control of your health, which is a complete illusion and you lack the knowledge to fix. When we get in situations like this, we wonder, where is God? 
in those times when things are not okay? Where is God in the this is not okay? And as we see in this passage, one of the things that we are reminded, which we shouldn't just gloss over, but we should think about, is a disciple is a person who will separate from the crowd to be with Jesus. This is during a time in Jesus' ministry where the crowds pressed in. The reason they got in the boat was because Jesus was fatigued from ministering to crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds. So he gets in the boat to get away with his disciples. That's why they're in the boat. But a disciple is somebody who says, okay, I am I'm bound to Jesus in a way that where he goes, I go. Which is not just a theological idea, but a lot of times it's a very practical working itself out in life reality, right? Is to follow Jesus, I know, is to help this person in this way, or is to make this decision because of an ethic that I need to uphold, or is to choose to use my time in this way to gather, for example, with the people of God in church because he said you're a part of the body of Christ and you're not meant to be alone and you're meant to be in community, all these things, that a Christian, a disciple, is a person who will separate from the crowds in order to follow Jesus. But here's the problem. I say problem. Here's the challenge with that. To be somebody who separates the from the crowd in order to follow Jesus means that we have to trust Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm profoundly encouraged when I see Jesus' closest disciples in Scripture struggling with trusting him. When they left the shore in the boat, things were fine, things were great. Can imagine the winds miles away were gathering momentum and were racing toward them, but they didn't know. And Jesus lay down in the stern of the boat and he fell asleep. And then he woke with a dripping wet face inches away from his, screaming at him Don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus wakes and he says, Quiet, be still. And the storm and the sea obeyed so that it became like glass, the scripture tells us. And now, it just got worse. Because, what do you do with that? You see, in, in those days, people revered the sea as the most accentuated display of power. It was this thing that everybody would look at and say, man can't control that. You know, and so when you look at like pagan gods, when you look at Roman gods, when you look at Greek gods, one of the things that you see is often the gods of power were gods of the sea. They controlled it, right? And, it, and, and they revered the sea because it was this utterly unmanageable force. To go to sea meant you could die at sea and it would be impersonal. Things would just happen that you couldn't control and that would be the end of it and there would be nothing you could do about it. It was a symbol of raw, unbridled power. And Jesus says, quiet, be still, and the sea obeys him. It falls in line. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? 
And the disciples are reeling because in their minds, probably they're saying, really? (laughs) Why are we afraid? (laughs) How did the disciples respond? Jesus, what Mark tells us is they transferred their fear from the storm that they would sure would kill them to an even greater fear of the man who commanded the sea and saved them. Why were they now all of a sudden afraid of Jesus? Tim Keller, I have a few Tim Keller quotes because he has a chapter on this in his book, Jesus the King, uh, which is magnificent, but, but here's, here's one of the things he says. In response to the question, why did their fear transfer to him? Is by his actions here, Jesus is demonstrating, I am not just someone who has power. I am the power. And the power itself. And anyone and anything in the whole universe that has any power has it on loan from me. These disciples were much more terrified now of the calm than they were of the storm. Why? Because as Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't always know what he's going to do. And if there's one thing I would want from us this morning, want for us, would be when you hear the statement, we don't always know what God will do, that his spirit would work in our lives in such a way to where that statement would bring comfort and not fear. It's one thing if the problems if the unexpected changes in our lives come from something like a storm, which is just blind, it's impersonal, it's unloving, it's just this unknowing force of nature. It just happens and we get in its way. It's quite another thing if we come to discover that our trials and changes are in some mysterious way coming from an all-knowing, all-powerful, personal being who loves us with an everlasting love and is calling us to draw near to himself. Why is that harder to process? Because this means that there's nothing random about our trials. There's nothing random about our suffering. And that's problematic because it flies in the face of the premise that we would say to Jesus, if you love us, you wouldn't let these things happen. You ever said this to God? If you really loved me, you would do what's so plain to me. When storms come to someone who thinks it's Jesus' job to stop them, Jesus says, your premise is wrong. I allow people to go through things. I allow people to go through storms all the time. But you don't need to fear because they're not the power. I'm the power. Does this make you mad at God? Keller again. See, sometimes I quote, I quote somebody if there's something hard I want to say, but I'm a chicken. Tim Keller says, look, 
If you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons you can't understand. And you can't have it both ways. When an impersonal storm comes, safety comes when we try to get away from it. When the tsunami is rolling in, you go for high ground because you know what the tsunami is going to do. That storm doesn't love you. It doesn't know you exist. But for the Christian, when Jesus is the Lord of our storms, the objective is not to get away, but is to draw near to him in the middle of it and to raise our questions, not rhetorically, but to raise them asking for an answer. Why is it to draw near? It's because he does, unlike an impersonal force, he knows me, he loves me, he has promised that he works all things together for my good. And under the banner of these truths, he allows the storms. Jesus never once in scripture promises to defend himself for the storms he allows. He says, in this world you will have trouble. He lets things happen that we don't understand. He does things that don't make sense to us. Sometimes, the thief takes the blade and cuts the masterpiece from the frame. Keller again. But if Jesus is God, then he has got to be great enough to have some reasons to let you go through things you can't understand. His power is unbounded, but so are his wisdom and his love. Nature is indifferent to you, but Jesus is filled with untamable love for you. See, the safest place in the world is in that boat, in that storm with Jesus. The only place where we're safe is in the middle of God's will. Now to the question, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're perishing? This world we live in does things like this. Don't you care about that? I like to think that for a brief moment, the thief and Rembrandt locked eyes. I'm speculating, I don't know. Nobody knows who the thief was. But I like to think that maybe, maybe they were face to face as that blade traced the frame. And maybe if that thief grew up around the church, around scripture when he was a child, maybe he sensed and understood what the painting was and sensed that Rembrandt was asking him in that act of cutting out the frame, don't you care that this world is broken like it is? Don't you care that we're perishing? We ask this question. We think we see the whole picture and it sure looks like God is missing. What's just so obvious to us? Don't you care that we're perishing? On what basis can we trust that he cares? And I close with this. The disciples in that boat had not yet realized something that we know from hindsight. And that is this. In that storm, in that boat, as they were pressing and shaking the shoulders of their rabbi, they were screaming into the face of the second person of the Trinity who had come in the flesh. Why? Because we're perishing.
the irony of this moment is that they are speaking and yelling at the person who is there for the very purpose of laying down his life to deliver his people from their perishing. The fact that he was there at all spoke volumes about his concern for our perishing. His disciples and all of humanity were in a much greater storm than the winds that tossed that boat on that sea in that day. There was a bigger storm happening. And Jesus had come specifically for that, to strike it down, to kill death, to destroy destruction. And he didn't stop until he himself was swept under it. On the cross, Jesus gives us a resolute answer to the question, don't you care that we're perishing? If he did not abandon us in that ultimate storm, do you think that he would abandon you in the midst of the storm you're facing right now. He will not. He will not. And not only that, he has promised to return soon to still all storms for all eternity. Jesus loves you in your storms. He knows you in your storms. And he doesn't Thankfully, he doesn't need you to understand all there is to know. He doesn't need me to understand all there is to know. And we say, yeah, but if I only understood, it would make my faith stronger. No. It isn't the strength of your faith that saves you from anything. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And that is Jesus. And he is enough So why are you afraid? Even the wind and the seas obey his voice. Pray with me. Lord, I would have been a miserable hot mess in that boat full of doubt, abandoning faith by the second. And I would not have understood when you calmed the storm that that was necessarily occasion to celebrate, I'm sure I would have been even more terrified of the position I was in to see you do that. And yet, Lord, (laughs) the Christian hope is that you will silence everything that causes any form of perishing forever with authority. Thank you, Lord, that in this story we see a picture of your divinity on display, that you didn't invoke the name of God, you just spoke as God, and it listened to you. And so, Lord, we bring our struggles, and and please, Lord, if, if, if anybody 
here has heard me being glib toward their sorrows, I pray that you would just let that fall to the ground because that is not the intention of my heart and I am a limited person in my ability to communicate. But Father, help us to understand that the magnificence of the cross and the resurrection is a greater victory over the brokenness of this world than anything else we could ever experience in this life. You have defeated the finality and the power of death itself. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, thank you. Help us to be your disciples as people who follow you into the storm rather than stay on the shore away from you if it means we have to do that and trust you to be good. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.